Hello, and welcome back to another edition of uh, Back to Jerusalem. This is our podcast, and uh, I'm Eugene Bach, coming to you live on delay from somewhere within the northern areas of Iraq. Right now, uh, I have uh, the privilege of sitting together with one of the people that uh, we've been working together with for several months. Uh, He's become a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Paul. Dr. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Eugene. It's good to talk to you, and thank you so much for coming to visit us. We get lonely here. (laughs) We have uh, been working together with Dr. Paul. Um, Dr. Paul has been able to arrange uh, for the Chinese that are serving uh, in this area of Iraq. And um, just really quick, could you give us a background of the area that the Chinese are serving in? Like, uh, uh, the people that you're working with, where did they come from? Uh, what are their challenges? Uh, how are they living right now? We're mostly working with people from the Yazidi religion who have come from an area about one or two hours away from here, in Mount Sinjar. And the Yazidi people are suffering a genocide by the ISIS uh, terrorists. So it was a planned invasion. They brought buses in to cart away the women in mass and killed the older the men and the older sons, and uh, denigrated the women in many different ways. And um, a lot of people escaped to the mountain and then escaped across the mountain into Syria and then back into Iraq, where they've come into tent camps and into communities like the one where we serve, little villages with unfinished houses where they can camp out and try to make a living for themselves. How long have you been living in Iraq? I know that you've been here for a while, but how how many years have you been here? It's been about seven and a half years now. And seven and a half years, uh, about a year, more than a year of your life now, has been dedicated to serving those that have been hit hardest in the Sinjari Mountain region and that now have moved into your area. Yes, uh, we came here in July of 2014, last year, just as the invasion was taking place. So as we settled into the village, they were just beginning to arrive. And then we had 6,000 come to our little village alone and many others in camps in the area around us. I know that a lot of people, when they think about uh, the challenges that are taking place in northern Iraq, when they see northern Iraq on the TV, when they hear about it in the news or read about it on the Internet, uh, they have images of an area that is war-torn an area that is extremely dangerous. Uh, what is the situation? Is, isn't it dangerous for you to be living in northern Iraq? It's not really dangerous at all for me. I'm here with my children, and uh, they have a normal life. They play out in the streets openly and in the hill country. Um, they have a, a very normal upbringing in most respects. You'd be surprised. But no, we're very safe here. The Peshmerga uh, soldiers in the Kurdish government have created a buffer zone, a safety zone, and they keep supervision over the distance between the terrorists and the other people who live in this area. I was—I uh, actually spent the afternoon at your house today. We had uh, we had lunch together, and uh, I have uh, two children. Uh, my oldest is sixteen. Uh, it seems that you're dealing with the same kind of teenage problems that almost any parent in America would be dealing with. I mean, I saw your relationship with your teenagers going back and forth. Um, it didn't seem that, you know, they feel they're living in a war zone. It, they seem your, your son seems to be a quite normal uh, teenager dealing with the teenage uh, problems of any teenager around the world. 
Yeah, they're very normal in that respect. What's unusual is that they live in a culture of serving other people, and they have to find their place within that. And since that's the place that I've chosen, they have to choose for themselves how they fit into that and how they see their role serving God in that area. And they help you in the ministry on a regular basis. So it's not that, you know, dad goes to work and then he comes home and goes back to work and comes home. Uh, They actually are involved in your work because your work takes place around your life. You live smack dab in the middle of this refugee area and almost every waking moment is uh, spent working with the refugees. Yes, they wish I'd have more buffers. They wish there were fewer refugee children in our house at all hours uh, looking for friendship and kindness and helping out or even working small jobs to earn some money for their families. Uh, but we try to put some some small barriers there so that we protect their time in the evening for family. But uh, during the day, they're handing out vegetables or clothing or they're helping us with building projects for the various service things that we do. And their neighbors aren't your typical American cul-de-sac neighbors. I mean, the neighbors in your neighborhood is basically a, a neighborhood of refugees. Actually, while I was there, it was interesting that uh, um, this must happen on a regular basis because you didn't act shocked at all. But you got this letter that came from a uh, a person that was local that basically wanted to come and work together for you. I think this was a, a, a child or uh, yeah, a teenager. young person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a request to work for me for one or two days a month to earn the taxi fare to go to high school. There were three boys sitting on the porch when I came by, and since I was busy, they sent in a little note in quite good English, surprisingly, just asking for help. And since I'm helping a lot of other boys and um, people from China through us are helping others get a chance to pull down rocks from the hillside and create places for building service buildings, um, they have a reasonable expectation that I will give them that kind of support and help them go on to high school. I I actually was fascinated by it because um, I can think of a classroom where I would be required to learn a second language. And as an assignment, maybe I would have to write a Dear John letter or a Hello, How Are You kind of letter. But this is a, uh, a young kid or a young teenager that... Um, obviously speaks uh, at least two languages, their mother tongue and then English and maybe another language after that. A lot of people speak um, maybe Kurdish, Arabic, and then English for, for this kid. And so his job was not just to write a letter for a classroom, but to write a letter that his education depended on, which is write a letter to this uh, foreigner living in our village or living in this village and uh, have good enough English where he would understand that I need work to make money to pay for my education. That was that was pretty touching. And the fact that they had enough trust in you and had heard about you enough to know that this is a place where I could go for help. Yes, they were probably encouraged on by their parents and their peers. They may have had a little help in practice writing even before <laughs> they got the note out. But for sure they were inspired and motivated to use their absolutely best English for that little note. Um, I'm sometimes busy and behind the doors, so they can't always just catch me. And uh, they made a very bold attempt, and and we'll we'll make sure that the Lord blesses them uh, through our prayers and 
service to them. Uh, for those of you that are listening that are regular supporters for Back to Jerusalem, this is somebody that um, I would ask that you pray for on a regular basis. Uh, this is one of the most busy guys that I that I, I think that I've met in a very long time. Uh, just to touch on some of the projects that I know that we're working on together, which is only a fraction of probably what you're doing uh, on a regular basis. But um, Back to Jerusalem, for those of you that are supporting us, uh, when it came to uh, building the school, working on the school uh, for Back to Jerusalem, the funding that we raised went to Dr. Paul. Then we have um, the uh, help for uh, the agriculture, uh, where we're able to do different things for the agriculture. That also, uh, the, the help for the Chinese came through Dr. Paul. And then when we talk about the uh, outreach for um, the former uh, sex slaves, that's together with Dr. Paul. But in addition to that, Dr. Paul is also regularly providing food. Um, uh, we have partnered together on doing a sanitation project where uh, septic tanks and toilets, which may not sound like a big deal for a lot of people, but uh, try to not use the restroom for a long time or start using it in your backyard for a couple months straight and see the buildup. And, and you will quickly realize how important a uh, porta potty in your backyard or a sanitized way of using the bathroom truly becomes, especially in a village of about 6,000 people. Um, that was on your lap. And then we have people that have come to this village of about 6,000 that are trying to help, but they need visas. And that is a bureaucratic mess uh, where, you know, you have to have several departments involved and, and people signing off and stamping. That's almost a full-time job. And uh, that doesn't include the outreach. So you're a busy person doing a lot of different things, wearing a lot of different hats, some of which... I know I haven't touched on because I'll just hear you talk about briefly um, some of the uh, other grants that you're doing, uh, which also involve research and planning and budgets. And that's a lot of work for one person. Well, we're trying to make the most with what the Lord gives us so that these people can have a better life. And any opportunity that we find that will serve the people of that village, uh, we're, we're just ready to bend over backward to help make it happen partner with everybody, facilitate their work, whatever relationship is is most useful for them. But our relationship with the Back to Jerusalem people has been so rewarding because the Chinese boys who've come there have been such faithful and hard workers, so dedicated in their service, and they're not very needy. They just fit in and, and help with whatever's going on. We don't always understand each other, but... Um, we have ways of communicating that we get by, and we work together just hand in glove, just perfectly. We're really grateful for that. And there are others coming from other countries now through Back to Jerusalem. We're, we're trying to get ready for them to arrive and to help the girls with sewing and with other um, income-producing projects and counseling and other things. Uh, could you just introduce that I that the the things that we've been working on recently, especially when it comes to uh, these former slave girls, because that has been something that we didn't initially uh, intend to get involved in. Uh, when I first heard about it, me personally, I said, "There's there's no way. There's no way 
possible that there is a need for these girls. Why? Because I've I've seen the news reports, I've seen uh, newspapers, I've seen social media has blown up with stories about these girls that were uh, taken in as sex slaves, as you said, when ISIS went into the Sinjar Mountains and loaded these girls up on buses and took them into other areas, and then they were sold like cattle on an open market. So we had these these girls um, and their stories have been told around the world. I thought for sure. There must be organizations that are climbing over each other in order to provide resources and help um, these women in need. But when I talked with you, that's th- these girls very much need help. Uh, could you introduce us to a little bit of their situation, their need, and how we are working together to meet their needs? Well, when these girls uh, reach the Kurdistan region, They've sometimes traveled across mountains and deserts with uh, sacks tied to their feet to protect them. They're, they're dusty and dirty, covered with, with the grime of travel, and their faces are forlorn for the, the, what they've suffered and the risk they took in running away uh, some moment in the night when they found an open window or some time just for a second when someone wasn't looking and they went the other way and they just ran and ran and ran until they found somebody who would help them or they just avoided people altogether and headed in the direction of the sun or just to get to another place of safety. And others are bought and paid for uh, for anywhere from $200 to $4,000 apiece. Sometimes the families learn of the location and raise the money to get them. Sometimes they find a cell phone and call their relatives and let them know where they are and that they are safe, and they try to find a way of escape. But once they do escape, um, some of them are given opportunities to stay with their family, and some go to safe houses. Some are enabled to go to Europe or another place fairly soon, but others are not. Um, There are some who are not accepted back by their families. The culture here is that if a woman is not pure, she is tainted forever, she is ashamed to the family, and so the family doesn't accept her back. These poor girls have nowhere to go, no one even to help them facilitate travel out of the country for safety. So they have to have safe houses, and we're starting to work with you folks now on developing that safe house for them. And then they have to learn a trade, a skill, so that they can support themselves. And they have to have something to do that's constructive. They have to get back in school. They have to develop friendship networks. And above all, they have to learn about Christ. Uh, I know that uh, if we were to put it into a phase system, one of the ways that we had looked at doing the support is providing a place where they are safe, uh, providing counseling for those, because I mean, the trauma must be extremely raw with them where they are, um, dealing with things that most young women are not dealing with. Because am I right to assume that the normal age of these girls are in from the teens to the early twenties? Yes. The, we have 12 and 13 year olds and we have women up into their thirties. Yeah, so, I mean, 12, 13-year-olds, usually they're worried about a big test coming up in school for the week, not uh, memories of being raped by several guys. So them having this kind of trauma, uh, it would really help to have some sort of counseling. So to provide a safe house for them, to provide counseling for them, then to provide 
vocational training or some sort of educational support for them. And then as a long-term goal to provide um, maybe business opportunities, microfinancing or something where they could use the um, uh, vocational training to possibly be involved in business in the future where they wouldn't become uh, victims again. Uh, today we talked about a couple ways of providing vocational training. Uh, could you just talk about uh, one of those ways? I know that we were talking about uh, providing training for them uh, in yes. one of the houses. Well, uh, one project is to teach them sewing and also uh, spinning wool. We have a lot of sheep in the area. And then knitting and craft making. Uh, also, there will be agricultural opportunities and marketing opportunities for products that they make. We'll try to be creative in some of the products that they can develop and market so that they can still be in the safety of the safe house for as long as they wish and need and yet earn uh, a living, earn something to put away for their future and pay for their books and their clothes and their educational costs if those are not already provided by other sources. I, I know that um, uh, the safe house that we're looking at right now would be uh, close to where you live. Already, you are surrounded by refugees and individuals that are dealing with pain on a regular basis. Uh, you've adopted uh, young boys uh, into your home where you've become a father figure for them. Um, many of them have lost their father, uh, some of them through uh, recent accidents, but some of them also from tragedies that they experienced uh, prior to coming to you. Um, you're dealing with that every single day. Uh, does does that pull you down? Does that uh, start to weigh on your own uh, happiness after a while? You're not a guy that I've known so far in the year that I've known you to take vacations and get away from it. Uh, no, I've never enjoyed vacations <laughs> in my life, but there's always too much work to be done. And uh, the life that we live is so short, and there's a need to have fruit, something to show for that. The Lord's looking for the increase. But these kids don't pull me down. They pull me up. I'm just, my heart is just, the heart strings are plucked constantly. It's just constant music going on in the background. Um, they don't always know how I'm responding, but I feel, I feel a lot of things that I don't always show on my face. Moments of joy, moments of sadness, of bitter disappointment, but they're growing and they're improving in so many ways. We're grateful for that. You can uh, you can hear a, a phone ringing. We are not in a studio. We are actually um, in a hotel uh, in the northern part of Iraq. Uh, so as most of you that listen to our podcast know, uh, we, do the, we do our recordings on the field. And uh, so if you hear a knock at the door, if you hear somebody come into our room, if you hear a phone ring, those things are going to happen. Uh, but we uh, we really thank you guys so much for your prayers and your support for Back to Jerusalem. And uh, when when you are praying for Back to Jerusalem and the Back to Jerusalem missionaries that have left China to go to other countries, uh, remember Dr. Paul and the work that he's doing. Um, on a regular basis, what would you say is your biggest challenge? My challenge is to raise my own family in the midst of this chaos with so many other needy children that would also like to be part of my family. And there aren't a lot of other people to take up the slack here. There aren't a lot of people who have the ability or the resources uh, or even the, the uh, calling to help them immediately with that need. 
Uh, we do have people who come in and help us, but they have their families to return to in other places. So we're starting to get more long-term people here and people who have a long-term commitment, even if they're coming and going. And that's taking a lot of the pressure off. But just to see day in and day out such wrenching needs um, saddens me sometimes. I, I don't like to say no. So what I do is I have a piece of paper, and we write down the name of every person that comes and a, a phone number or something to get in touch with them and a description of what their need is so that we can try to systematically meet those needs over time as much as possible. But at least they don't go away hopeless like they've been rebuffed and haven't been heard. And we hope that uh, as we mention the name of Jesus when we give any help and we show love to them consistently and show goodness to them, that they will see that there is a way in Christ that is better than what they've seen, what they've experienced and they will come to that light. Now, uh, one of the things that we have been working together uh, on has been providing an education for children. Uh, that's something that we usually don't get involved in uh, just because it is one of those things that uh, can be a very long-term commitment. But after working together with you for several months and seeing that these children had gone about a year without any education, we felt compelled to jump in and work together with you on providing education for these children. Uh, but on top of providing an education for the children, you have also been holding church services where 20 children or so come and join you. Can you share about that? Yes, we have uh, our volunteer workers in, in the meeting, of course, and we have a few from the local Christian community. They're usually uh, Chaldean or Assyrian uh, Catholics, but we have a, a growing number of the young Yazidi children coming into the meeting. A lot of times there isn't a chair for them, so they're sitting on the carpeted floor in the midst of this group. But uh, they're just wrapped in their attention and eager to receive the words. And Most of them are worker bees that have some relationship with us on a day-to-day -day basis. So coming to that meeting is a way to be close to us outside the work setting, but it's also a way that they can learn something more about what motivates us to help them, which is quite a surprise because other groups here are are trying to kill them systematically. Um, not a lot of listeners necessarily know about the Yazidi people. Uh, these kids are coming from a Yazidi minority group. Can you share a little bit why that is a big deal? Part of the problem is that the Yazidis live far away in isolated areas. They've done so for safety reasons. They mostly live at the foot of Mount Sinja, where they can run up the mountain in time of stress, because they're surrounded by sort of wastelands. They're not very close to any big city. And that way their culture, which is very different from other cultures, can be preserved. But in some ways that makes them a little bit like North Koreans in that they're so isolated they don't know what's going on somewhere else. And they don't know why they observe the religious practices they observed, except that some old man told them to do so. There's no book that they read or study. There's no service that they attend. There are occasionally at funerals they might hear some um, speaker tell them something about their so tradition. So they're not Muslims. These are not Muslims. The Yazidi yeah. people have their a different religion. Yes, it's a religion that worships God and angels. They're monotheistic, but they don't have a concept of a bad angel. They only have a concept of good angels. They don't have a concept of a devil. Um, and they are um, misrepresented by the local culture as Satan worshippers, which is ridiculous. There's nothing about them that 
is involved in acknowledging the existence of a Satan or a devil. They just believe that angels are real and good figures and they venerate them, but they pray to God and they pray to angels. Because, I mean, we weren't that familiar with this Yazidi religion when we first moved in. And just to give you an example, we started an agricultural project together with the Chinese, and the Chinese grew lettuce, not knowing that lettuce can't really be consumed by the Yazidis. Uh, today, uh, I came together with our Norwegian friends. They brought clothing. Uh, some of that clothing had blue in it, uh, which is a color that is taboo for the Yazidis. Yeah, they can't eat cabbage or cauliflower or broccoli or lettuce. and they Sounds like a religion my kids would enjoy. <laughs> yeah, and they can't wear anything that's got a speck of blue on it, any shade of blue. They can't wear V-necks like golf shirts or V-neck sweaters. And the women can't wear dresses if they don't know who made the neckline. It has to be made by a Yazidi or a Christian. It's not allowed that it's made by a Muslim. Yeah, so these are you know things that uh, I, most people have never heard about. I mean, the Yazidi people are not that well known around the world. Um, the Yazidis that you were coming in contact with, percentage-wise, how many of them do you think had heard about uh, Jesus Christ prior to being forced out of their village by ISIS and forced to move into the area where you're now at? Most of them have heard about Jesus routinely in their funeral services and other moments when people speak because they believe Jesus was a prophet, a very important prophet, um, after God and their peacock angel, Taos Melech, he's the third most important religious figure. And they believe he's coming back and that he will reshape the earth and the people in it and change many things. They um, they also believe that Jesus was a very close friend with their major angel, Melek Taos. So for that reason, they when they run away, they run to Christian communities rather than Muslims. And they consider the 74, 76 genocides that have been um, used against them over the years to be a function of the Islamic religion. So they avoid those areas as much as they can. And also the Christians are, well, the Christians consider them, the local Christians say they're dirty and uneducated and backward. The fact is they're very um, bright and energetic people who take their interests seriously and work hard for them, themselves and their families, seek educational opportunity, are capable of great advancement and great things. But because they're called dirty, people won't let them work in food establishments. They won't buy their sheep or goats from them. They won't intermarry, of course, with them. But the Yazidis don't usually change their religion, but some have changed their religion to Christian in this area. I've met a number of them, and they're very devout. So they're open to Jesus, but they don't receive Jesus into their heart usually because they don't consider him to be the Son of God, and this is, uh, this is what has to happen before Jesus can come in. So we're working on showing them the love and giving in Jesus' name without a lot of indoctrination hoping that they'll see the spirit of the Christian people there and understand why their elders trusted the community of Christians over a community of Muslims as a safe refuge. And the majority of the students that are going to the school, they're Yazidi? Yes, they're all Yazidis, uh, except during the holidays, maybe in the summer, there will be some Assyrian or Chaldean Christians who come in as well. 
And I know uh, sometimes the uh, the numbers at the school can fluctuate from 40 students to 400 students. How many students would you say that you guys have been able to impact um, through the several months that the school's been running? Well, we've had about 600 students in the school. Some of them come and go. Uh, some of them excel and some of them don't. Some are behavioral problems like you find in any culture and are sent back home. In some cases, the parents are concerned that maybe we'll teach about Jesus or religion in the school. Although we don't, we just uh, sing songs about Jesus and other songs too. They're happy, uh, most parents are happy for us to sing about Jesus. They believe in Jesus and they believe he's very important. So over time, they're beginning to trust us more. And some of them that ran away, their parents pulled them out, are bringing them back and asking, put them on the waiting list to come back into the school. There's quite a long waiting list now. And I would say that there are lives that have been impacted by uh, the Christians that are helping you teach at the school as well as yourself. And I think that that's evidence through the number of children that come and join you for the Sunday services. I I mean, I don't know if, if you would say so, but I think that's uh, an indication that these children are going to grow up never being the same as they would if they had been still in the Sinjar Mountains. Once you touch a heart, the heart cannot be untouched. And these kids are being touched. You can see it in the brimming smiles on their faces, the bright eyes that look up to the volunteers. And the way they run up the hill, any chance they get for an opening to spend time with any one of the workers. They're volunteers at every effort. They're not just students in the school. They cling to the sides. They beg for hugs and kisses and they're just like any kid in any other place, starve for attention, affection, love, esteem, and don't ask for much in return. Now, you have uh, your own organization, MedEast. Uh, could you give some information about that? What's your website if people want to learn more about you or they want to support your organization? Well, MedEast, that's M-E-D-E-A-S-T, one word, in uh, .org is our website, MedEast.org. Uh, you can see pictures of the Yazidis that we served. We're a little bit out of date on our pictures because we've been so busy with helping lately. But you'll get a good representation of the kinds of things we're doing and who we're serving. But MedEast was established here as an Iraqi organization. It's not a foreign organization. And our purpose is just to help the people locally. We need that status in order to get residency and visas for the workers that are here. And to establish a relationship with a government that explains our, our reason for being here. Um, if, you, if you're able to log on at mediste.org, um, uh, you will be able to see some of the work that uh, Paul was talking about um, and the things that he is doing on a regular basis. Like he said, that information may not be updated because they are on the field, and that's why we are joining together with Dr. Paul. Of all the different areas that we went to, we felt that he has an amazing opportunity because he basically has adopted a village. And together with him, we also have adopted that same village. It's not the biggest of villages. It's not the same as being in a United Nations uh, refugee camp. But it's 6,000 people in that village where their lives can be touched and changed forever. Uh, like Dr. Paul had said, once you touch a, touch a life, it can't be untouched. Uh, for those of you that have been supporting us and supporting this work through Back to Jerusalem, we thank you. We thank you for your prayers. And when you pray, 
um, start thinking about uh, the things that Dr. Paul and his family are doing together on a regular basis. And may the things that he shared with you create imagery in your mind during the time that you were before the Lord uh, in your prayer time, praying for the unreached areas of the world. When we talk about the the abysses of the world, the black holes, the areas where the gospel has not come, the areas that are the most violent uh, uh, and uh, that are lost in poverty and, and facing war on a regular basis, this is the area of the world that we're asking you to pray for on a regular basis. So we ask you to please continue praying for us and remember us. And thank you for joining Back to Jerusalem on another podcast. Again, this is Eugene Bach coming to you live on delay through our podcast. God bless you guys. Bye.